0: Very early on in the new novel by Pat Conroy called Beach Music, we are introduced to the narrator and main character of this book who narrates the book and who says as follows, My name is Jack McCall, and I fled to Rome to raise my daughter in peace. And now in 1985, as I went up the spiral staircase that led to my terrace and a rooftop view of Rome, I took a music box that Shyla." Shila is his dead wife had given me as a present on our fifth wedding anniversary winding it I looked again over the Roman night far off a bell struck sounding much like a lost angel and a breeze came off the Tiber the music box played Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 21 one of my favorite pieces of music in the world the air was heavy with the dinner smells rising from the Ergergero's restaurant below grilled lamb mint leaves and sage i closed my eyes and saw shyla's face again it is my pleasure to welcome pat conroy to idiot's delight and i wonder if like jack mccall this isn't one of your favorite pieces of music as well it's
1: completely fiction that uh no, it's one of my favorite pieces
0: of to <laughs> oh, totally You're going to start off that I, way huh? I,
1: I was going to say something else but, but, but there's no question about it I love, it. I love that <laughs> music
0: Because I, I dug through all my old scratchy records To find this today for you This piano concerto number 21 This is uh, a remarkable and wonderful new book Let me get the fan stuff out of the way first Okay, before we talk I have been a big fan for years don't I'm, get it out
1: of the way quickly, Vin. I'm, Go on as
0: long as you want. <laughs> I'm thrilled that you're here. Um, we don't. When I have guests on this show, it's because I want them and I ask for them. And uh, I did more than ask for you. I literally begged. <laughs> I begged for Pat Conroy. And, uh, and I prayed and my prayers were answered. And so I'm thrilled that you're here. I've spent the last two weeks reading this book. I've had um, a delightful moving time with it. And uh, and it it met all of my expectations. And I guess you have you don't have all that many lay people readers yet at this point because the book I I have almost no
1: readers right now. Ven, it's not (laughs) so it's very surprising, you know, to hear you say you have read it. Uh, Members of my family have not read it. Is that true? Really? So this is it's it's a you know one of the first reviews from someone I did not know that I'm looking at from five feet away.
0: I just uh, I got sucked into it early on. and I just couldn't stop. It was it was a page turner. It it affected me the same way The Prince of Tides did. It moved me in the same kinds of ways, and I found myself um, deeply attracted to this character, Jack McCall, and then knowing how much of of you is in Jack and some of the other characters in the book deeply attracted to you as well. I mean I hope it's I hope it's okay to say that. I feel a kinship we, with we you. We we have all night, then Okay, good. <laughs> I feel a real kinship with you and I think a lot of your readers feel that as as well. Um there's a there's a sense that you are that you experienced so many of the things that we all did coming up and and coming up through the 60s, especially, which plays a large part in this book. And also the the family business, much of it dysfunctional, certainly, in your books, and, and as you've said in any number of interviews in your life as well. But there's something about that dysfunctional family that comes together in times of crisis or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a loyalty, there's a love in that love-hate relationship that we all can relate to, and we all... Um, Find it refreshing to have a writer so open about it. You know? Well, you know when I go out to signings, Vin, I'm always surprised when people
1: will come up to me and they'll say, "Your family is crazy." Weren't? And I'll say, "Yeah." Uh-huh. How was your family? And a lot of times I'll say, "Well, my family was wonderful. My family is very nice. It wasn't dysfunctional." At all. And I said, "Then now that we're speaking honestly, tell me the truth. How long, if we went through your family, would it take for me to find the first crazy? <laughs> Mom, Dad." Brother, sister, mm. and generally you don't have to go much further than that. I mean, usually you'll hit upon one very, very quickly mm. if someone is is t- telling you the truth. But in your family, you didn't even you didn't have to go f- past oh, mom, no, no, mom and no. I, I hit that mom means... and dad. <laughs> All my brothers. <laughs> and 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 it was a big family too. It right? was a, a huge family. There was there were seven children. Uh, You're there, the oldest. I was the oldest. There were six miscarriages. My sister Carol used to call the miscarriages the lucky ones, and wow. and it was her belief that. These little miscarried, miscarried Conroys uh, simply heard what was going outside in the world and decided not to go along for the ride. Yeah, they didn't want it, huh? Were they before you or... During? Well, one was before me, uh, the rest were after me.
0: So your mom was pregnant a, I thought women lot? were
1: pregnant all the time. All the time. I, I did not realize they had a time of vacation or they had days off for good behavior. I knew none of that.
0: Yeah. Now, see, I'm one of these people who can can look at my family and go, No, no, my family was normal, not dysfunctional. I mean, sure, I can point out, you know, mm-hmm. the the obsessive uh, cleanliness thing that my mother had, you know, where you could eat off her floor, and I could point to the fact that my father's whole life was on index cards. But in your family, there were there was abuse, you know, there were there were beatings. Your your father was a tyrannical. Your father was the great Santini.
1: Yes, Dad was a, Dad was a tough guy. I I was telling someone today. Uh, that I, I never met anybody when I was growing up who could beat up my father. Dad was a six-foot-four marine fighter pilot. Uh, he was checked out to carry nuclear weapons and I thought, you know, this... And he was huge and I realized he could wipe out cities if given the opportunity. Uh, my mother was exquisitely beautiful and I had these two larger-than-life figures you know, walking through my childhood, wading through there, and, and I realized I got a great gift as a writer. Uh, their Their craziness came easily, uh, also their passion, their love, uh, they had great strengths to give to children also. But when I came down to write, you know I realized I never could find anybody as delirious or out of control
0: as my own two parents. Mm. Was there a time when you first began writing when you thought no, I can't? do this? I can't take them and put them on paper like that? Yeah, because I came out of the South and uh, went to
1: a military college in South Carolina, what I did not know then is I didn't know any other writers. I just hadn't met any. Um, The military college of Citadel that I went to uh, had not produced a long line of novelists that I could go to (laughs) for advice. Mm. So what I ended up doing is innocently writing The Great Santini. And I now realize I should have hidden this more. I should not have made it a Marine Corps fighter pilot. I should have made the guy a a pilot for Delta. I should have, you Uh know, made it not Southern. I should have hid, I think, out of decency, I believe, um, that these were my parents, that these were... uh, I didn't change the way they looked a bit. I changed nothing. I didn't change the way they talked at all. I simply wrote this novel and made up things, made up new things, and that is why I called it a novel. It was not a documentary. And my reaction, i know Dad went nuts when this book came out. Uh, this was before he became a media star and now appears on radio programs much like this one. Does he really? Yes, he talks yeah? about child rearing, on <laughs> oh radio God. and television shows, and I've always called him a, a sort of Nazi Dr. Spock that goes around
0: and says, we need more discipline in this country. Wow. People, if they haven't read The Grant, Great Santini, may be familiar with it through the film version. Um, Robert Duvall, of course, plays the part of... of My father Bull thinks he
1: made Duvall's career. Really? Yeah. He, thinks well, it he, was a, uh, it, he said Robert Duvall was a B actor before he got to play. He got his hands on a meaty part like mine, uh-huh, son. Uh-huh. And I made Duvall. I put him on the map. Do you have a
0: love-hate relationship? With the old man?
1: With Dad, yes. I mean, I told Dad, I said, Dad, I've improved. I used to have a hate-hate relationship with you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after these books, I mean, my father, I think when he read The Great Santini, I personally believe it was the first novel he ever read in his entire life. Wow. Uh, Dad, when I was growing up, I'd say, what's your favorite book, Dad? He'd say, The Baltimore Catechism. What's your next favorite? The Marine Corps Officer's Manual, Son. And I, he was such a uh, figure of authority, but I think reading Santini changed my father, where he has spent the rest of his life trying to prove that I'm a liar, that uh, that portrait of him was not who he really is. And Dad's become a much
0: nicer guy since then. Hmm. It had so it had a positive effect on Dad.
1: Well, you know he's still he's still not Bill Cosby. you know, Don't <laughs> get
0: me wrong. <laughs>
1: is he is he a drinker? The way some of you your know, father he, characters, Dad said? was a, Dad was a big drinker. Uh, you know back when he was a pilot, it was I think it was part of being the fighter pilot thing. It was part of the macho. Thing yeah, and Dad guys. would you know the worst night of the year for a military brat is always Friday night when happy hour comes on, and this is when your know, Dad would come back from you know happy hour in the bar and. Uh, with his knuckles dragging along the ground and uh, you know he, and he was a big tough guy you know the whole time I was growing up mm-hmm. and when he hit you always remembered it
0: how do you how do you how do you see not having had a father like that not having grown up in a family where that kind of punishment occurred or that kind of abuse occurred. How do you find it in your heart to come to grips with that and forgive that and develop the love part of the love-hate relationship? Well,
1: I, you know, I think it's because you are only dealt those two cards when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. You, know, you you get two cards; these two parents, and you know, I decided I had to make the best I could of that. Um, uh, what, what has been interesting is Dad has denied that he ever hit any of us. Uh, he'll he'll sign books with me periodically. He'll sit beside me at department stores. And sometimes he'll lean over and say, my line's longer than yours, son. And he signs himself, oh, lovable, likable. And he's, he's very funny about this. And he, he'll say, I hope you enjoy my son's work of fiction. He underlines fiction three or four times. But it is in the denial of it that dad and I have come into conflict. And... He, you know, it's it's caused, and we've divided up into family. You know, my, my wife have sisters says it never happened. I have uh, four brothers that say it happened exactly the way I said it did. Wow. And the brothers say he didn't hit the girls. That's why they don't. That's remember. why they don't
0: remember. Yeah.
1: Did you get to a point where you where you hit back? You no, back? I got to a point where I. I told Dad. I said, Dad, I noticed you quit hitting hitting me when it became dangerous to. Mm. I noted that you stopped hitting me when uh, you worried I would hit you back. And it was a very, very smart decision because I certainly would have. But I was a different kid. You know, I, was, I was different than dad. I didn't want to hit him back. I didn't want to beat dad up. And he and, and what dad would always say, that's the softness of your mother's son. you know. Mm. And I think it always irritated dad that his sons were not the hard guy he was. All of the, all of the. Boys. None of us were like that. I hmm. mean, this is dad was. Um, d- dad was Godzilla-like. You know, from the time I remember him, and big, huge, threatening, and as one of my brothers, my brother Jim said, very mean all the way through. Yeah.
0: But still, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that not one of your brothers grew up like him. Not one of them emulated him. I mean, as as mean as he was, yeah, I, that, that you didn't have a brother with a mean streak who said, yeah. oh, dad's great.
1: Yeah, what, dri- what drives us crazy is that we're like him in other ways. I mean, we look like dad. We, uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have a temper like dad. And uh, it's, you know, they're, they're definitely... Genetics is very strong. We have uh, we have a lot that we we find ourselves sounding like Dad sometimes. I had a brother tell me recently, "Shoot me!" I sounded just like Dad the other day when I was talking to my right. wife, and right. I, I just want you to kill me <laughs> and put me out of my misery.
0: Well, now there are all these brothers in the new book in in Beach Music. Uh, Jack McCall. Maybe we can briefly give a synopsis of, okay. of what the book is since nobody has read it yet right. it's not it's not coming out in, until later this week i guess yeah, wednesday I think so. or thursday is the official pub date um at the very beginning of the book a woman jumps off the the bridge uh, outside of uh, charleston what's the name of the, the bridge the silas perlin bridge okay which is the, the most frightening bridge in the world <laughs> the first the how do you first know, you know I've bridge? been to Charleston and the first time you see that bridge and you're in a car and you have to drive over that bridge that bridge has like what a 75 this degree incline in it exactly. is the scariest bridge in the world and what a what an incredible place to have a character commit suicide from it's a frightening place She commits suicide in the very first line of the book, this woman named Shiloh. And uh, and we discover that the narrator, Jack McCall, has, as I just read, fled to Rome with their young daughter to escape his family, his past, the death of his wife, to rebuild his life. And uh, something happens at the beginning of the book that calls him back to the States. So that the book takes place both in Rome where he is living. He is a writer. He is a writer of um, uh, cookbooks and food books and magazine articles about food and, and travel. Uh, something calls him back to the Low Country of uh, South Carolina. By the way, is is the the town in the book a fictional town or
1: is that a real town? It's a fictional town. It's uh, Waterford, South Carolina, but it's based on uh, the town I call my hometown, Beaufort. It is South Buford. Carolina. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's that's. Have I'm you
0: been going. to Beaufort, Vin? I drove through Buford on the way from uh, uh, Charleston to uh, Savannah. Okay. You know, took the back roads down. Uh, we the family took a summer trip uh, two years ago. And we drove through the south. It's a pretty part of the it's country. It's a beautiful it? part of the country. And uh, when I when I got to Savannah, I started to talk to um, a, an inn operator there about the islands and about something that I had seen once. I had a vague memory of seeing a documentary on public television about one of the islands where a language was spoken that was only a small part of English, American, and was something else entirely, and I couldn't remember anything about it. And I'm telling this to the innkeeper, and he goes, oh, Defusky, That's right. And the language is called? Gullah. Gullah. And Gullah is like a pigeon. It's a, I don't know exactly what it's called.
1: They think it is, and it, there's various theories on it, but they think it's a combination of uh, African language, uh, English, um, uh, isolation, uh, but, it, but it is a... Patois spoken by the blacks in the low country of
0: South Carolina and Georgia. Mm. And that's what what, uh, the water is wide. Exactly right. Your your teaching experience. Uh, You taught on Defusky. Defusky. Now, tell me if this guy was pulling my leg or not. He told me that Defusky got its name because it was, in fact, the first island in a string of islands, and that everybody always referred to that as being Defusky of the islands? Um, or I was heard, he pulling my leg?
1: Okay, I've heard that theory. You get lots of theories down in South Carolina. Uh-huh. The other one was that it was the English fought a battle with the uh, Yamacraw Indians that lived on the Fusky, and the Fusky was called the Place of Blood in the Indian language where mm. a massacre had taken place at the end of that island. Mm. Now, you taught there. You taught... Taught there. Certainly did. In a, in a little one-room schoolhouse. One-room schoolhouse house, for, uh, for a year before I was fired. Why were you fired? Gross neglect of duty, conduct, unbecoming a professional educator, AWOL, and insubordination. Ooh, downright military, wasn't it? It, <laughs> <laughs> it effectively ended my teaching career. Uh-huh. Were you guilty of these things? Yeah, you know, it was, I think what it was. It was the first year of teacher integration in South Carolina. And before that, they said uh, separate but equal was a very big concept in the South. And when I got over to this school, I was teaching grades five through eight and discovered that... Uh, had fifth graders who couldn't write their name, didn't know the alphabet. Uh, kids who didn't know what country they lived in. So uh, I wrote to superintendent of schools and said that you can forget separate but equal. Um, this wasn't the education I received in this county, and uh, this school is a disgrace. Uh, he did not particularly like the letter, and the letters kept coming all year. And uh, he wished me luck in whatever new profession I undertook the next year.
0: But you were out of there. And it was, unfortunately for him, it was writing. <laughs> and he became my first villain. <laughs> that's right. That's right. In, in the Water is Wide, mm. which was then turned into a film. Why did they change the name of the film to Conrack? Here's what? why. I learned about titles. The Water is Wide. Your listeners
1: this, tonight can say, you know, they heard about The Water is Wide. They won't get it right. I got letters uh, to the author of How Wide Was My River. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> the wa- Water is Wine was one of them. But I knew I truly failed when someone told me they read the book and they had enjoyed The Water is
0: Wet. I guess yeah. <laughs> so it became uh, the, the name of the character. And Conroy was the name of, the, of the, what they call a the teacher. Conrad. Pat Conroy, whose new book, Beach Music, is being published this week, is also, of course, the author of The Prince of Tides, uh, as well as The Great Santini and uh, The Lords of Discipline. And the first novel, which was called The Boo, The Boo. Which is is pretty much unavailable. I've never come across it. Should be it. unavailable. It's one of the worst books ever written <laughs> in our language. Well, it was it was published at some point along the way. It was right? it was published. Yes. Okay. There there is a story about you um, um, self publishing that book. Uh, once again, I have to go back to the
1: not um, knowing any writers, and I had been out of beautiful. So the one writer I knew died before I started writing this book, and so I could not ask her. And I'd written about the commandant in charge of discipline at the Citadel, who was called the Boo. Uh-huh. And I wrote this out by hand. And was that his nickname, or was that what anybody was called who he had a uh, position? He was called Colonel uh, Nugent Crevazzi, and the uh, cadets couldn't pronounce it, uh-huh. so the Boo was the what book. his nickname. Okay. And when I finished writing the book by hand, it is uh, it's a Citadel. If you major in English, it was an open admission that you were gay. And they just, you know, had never seen English majors, particularly the Citadel. So, uh, you know, the colonel said, uh, Bubba, you're an English major. You must know how to get a book published. And I said, you know, colonel, I have no idea. And he was smoking a cigar, and he said, let's look at the Yellow Pages. I said, that's fine. We did. In the Yellow Pages, I found, um, you know, there was uh, this one company that said invitations, business cards,
0: Oh, oh, a printer. Printer. Yeah, there, yes.
1: So, you know, I went down there and I said, I heard it was really hard to get a book published. The guy said, no, no, you come to the right place. I said, no kidding. I've always read these books. I heard it was tough. Nah, you know, are you kidding? So he said, for I think a 1,000 books, I could, you know, pay $2,500. And uh, I said, you know, is that a good deal? He said, ah, oh, it's terrific. Uh-huh. So I went to the bank and there was a guy, the Citadel graduate in Buford named Willie Shepard. And I said, Willie? I'm writing a book about the Citadel. Can you lend me twenty five hundred bucks? Sure, man. You want more? Nobody's ever written a book about the Citadel, so I thought I discovered the secret of book publishing with this thing. And we published the book. We sold them all because Citadel people were naturally mm-hmm. dying to read a book about themselves. And I discovered that law of publishing: to have an audience, mm-hmm. a built-in audience. Built-in right. audience. <laughs> then later on, I was doing the waters wide. Someone got me the name of an agent, Julian Bach, here in New York, and. Um, Uh, Julian uh, I think was stunned when somebody from Beaufort South Carolina got in touch with him but I sent him up a manuscript and he when he called me back he said Houghton Mifflin wanted to do it and they said they published Thoreau Emerson, Henry James but here's the great news $7,500 and in a line he has never let me forget he said Pat I said said to him uh, Julian um, I can get it done cheaper down here in Beaufort
2: <laughs>
1: and there was a stunned silence. He says, "Pat, do you understand? They pay they you." Pay you. And that, that was so. That was my introduction and into the real world of publishing in right. New York publishing. All
0: right. Well, speaking of paying people, let's pay some bills here. We have got to do some commercial words, okay? Pat Conroy is my guest on Idiot's Delight.
2: Tired of the same old song and dance from Toyota, Mazda, and Ford? <laughs>
0: That, friends, is uh, one of the prime examples of beach music. That's the kind of music that uh, Pat Conroy and all of his friends were dancing to. They were doing a dance called the Shag. And kids up and down the coastal region, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, down into northern Florida, still to this day celebrate the glories of uh, beach music and still do the Shag. Can you still do it, Pat? I can't believe that I'm having this
1: discussion in uh, New York City. Yeah, I can still do it. Um, <laughs> in fact, that's the only one I, can, I
0: really can still do. The shag is mostly like an upper body. Yeah, it's thing, a right? well,
1: the upper body. It's sort of like um, you know Irish dancing. The really the guys are really good. They they, they look like um, uh, it, it's not a dance of great passion, but it's a dance of great coolness. You know these uh, the guys I used to admire. You know, look like. They couldn't look like they were excited to be dancing with the girl they were dancing with, and same with the girl; she uh-huh. could not look excited. But it was a, it was a, it was a lovely dance. And beach music was sort of this mindless innocence. Um, it was wonderful when you were out on a pier with the ocean underneath you, to hear beach music with the waves crashing beneath you underneath. And uh, when uh, the girls were pretty and the boys were handsome, it just—it's uh, it, the sound of my childhood. It's mm. a soundtrack that I,
0: I I still hear when I. But, but isn't it interesting that it remains the soundtrack for that age group um, over all of these decades? You know, I, 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 hear and, I, I hear
1: there are still shag oh, contests down yeah. at oh, Myrtle yeah. Beach, and uh, Virginia Beach has, uh, and it, it's something that is simply, what, what has surprised me is that kids still do it. Down in the Carolinas, down in Virginia. There's the, the group called Chairman of the Board.
0: Exactly like General right. Johnson. Give me just a little more time or whatever that I, how do is. you How do you know this? What, I, what, what, I, what is it, are you a historian? What is this, this Finn? Are you kidding? I know about this stuff. Well, I actually did a show with General Johnson. Did you really? Uh, okay. So about this... a year and a half or so ago. And he told me all about the fact that Chairman of the Board still to this day work something like 250 nights a year. I believe that up and down the coast, they go inland a little bit but not that far inland, and, and they still have an enormous following and a livelihood playing at these shag beach things. This is, uh, they, you know, they have
1: shag contests, they have shag lessons, uh, up and down the coast. What, um, one of the things it did in the South that I remember very well was I think it, it helped integration. It was, I would, I would be in these uh, piers. Uh, with the ocean all around the beach, you hear this thing. And it was the first time I ever saw black bands. Mm-hmm. And the black bands were fabulous yeah. it, with these beach music, the, uh, the Tams, uh, the Drifters, they, uh, the Hot Nuts. I mean, there were just uh, just a heck of a lot of bands that just you know, made their living off this. And I guess what I thought is that after your, your youth is over, you think um, that that music will die too. Mm-hmm. And I think it surprised all of us that beach music is still such a, was a going proposition. Was Beach Music always the title for the new novel? It was for the new novel. I, um, you know, had messed around with another title, and then I c- came up with that. In my uh, my editor Nancy so said, "That's it. Don't think anything else." And what she didn't want were kings and queens and like Lords of Dust the Great Santini, the mm-hmm. Prince of... She was tired
0: of this kings and queen stuff. Oh
1: well, you know, I never
0: made that that association. The Great Santini and the Prince of... Ty- yeah, she thought yeah, I had the yeah, most okay. pretentious
1: titles of yeah. anyone in, in history.
0: Oh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I disagree with your editor on that one, but uh, Beach Music is a great title because it's not just about... Beach music, that kind of beach music, rock and roll beach music, it's about the sound of the ocean as well. That's it's right. about the uh, the sound of the wind blowing through the, the Spartina grass, you know. It's a whole, and it's the sound that, that these people make. It's the music that comes out of the voices of these people. So it embraces lots of different sounds. There's a scene, though, right at the very beginning of the book that I wonder if I could uh, impose on you to to read for us. This man, Jack, has a daughter who is, I guess, when we first meet her, what, about six, seven years old? I now? think she's uh,
1: seven or eight. In yeah. my editor, and I thought about how old she was, okay. and, and she changed. I don't even remember what she is now.
0: She has lived in Rome right. for yeah. the last five years exactly or so, right. since, since she was two or three. That's when she uh, was brought over by her father after the mother commits suicide. And he has told her stories over the years about, uh, about his growing up and about his relationship with Shiloh, the wife. And She loves to hear these stories over and over and over again and Jack of course is a great storyteller So he doesn't mind telling the stories over and over again, and this is the story of um, how Jack and Shiloh who were childhood friends who grew up next door to each other how they how they fell in love or how they first Realized in a in a very strange and interesting moment that they were in fact in love with each other
1: and this is night On the Atlantic Ocean when they fell in love and it goes like this Then I would begin in earnest going back to St. Michael's Island during that storm-tossed year of northeast winds when the erosion along the barrier islands reached dangerous levels. On the shifting, undermined beach where part of an ancient forest was newly underwater to the north, the baseball team of Waterford High was throwing a party at high tide. It was a night. It was predicted the Middleton House would begin to break up and fall into the sea. Four houses, a mile to the south, had been lost during the last spring tides. Though the house was condemned and abandoned, we were going to give it a going-away party. Already it had begun to shift seaward to lean toward the chased silver of the incoming breakers. The surf kept time to our dancing and counted out loud the slipping away of those last hours we would ever be teenagers. All of us had been there at the birth of rock and roll, and we had done our part in putting rhythm and desire to music as we danced our way in both wildness and innocence through high school. The authorities had declared the house off-limits, and we had broken through the sheriff's lock and liberated the house for one last party at Flood Tide. I was almost 18, and still in possession of that crazy edge of a teenager— "'Full of bravado and maker's mark, "'I had boasted that I was going to be in that house "'when it set sail from its anchorage "'on the old seaside road. Leder Ansley, my date, "'had too much horse sense to stay in that tilted house, "'illuminated only by the headlights of cars "'my teammates had driven to the party. "'On the way to the island, Leder had told me sweetly "'that it was time we began seeing other people, "'that her parents were insisting "'that we break up soon after graduation. "'I nodded my head, not in agreement,' but because I had not yet found my voice, which lay hidden under a hormonal frenzy that struck me nearly dumb. She also confided in me that she was going to ask Capers Middleton to accompany her to her debut at Charleston St. Cecilia's Ball. My origins were iffy and much rougher than Ladares, and my mother had warned me for years that this night was coming, but she never told me it would hurt as badly as it did. The whole team and their dates had begun the night dancing to the music of transistor radios. The local station WBEU playing all the songs that had accompanied our class through four years of high school. The sea rose invisibly beneath us, and the moon shone smooth and bright, a glossy flute of light like a velvet down a, like velvet down a bridal aisle, lit the marlin scales and the backs of whales migrating a hundred miles at sea. The tides surged through the marsh, and each wave that hit the beach came light-struck and broad-shouldered, with all the raw power the moon could bestow. Magically, an hour passed, and we, ocean dancers and tide challengers, found ourselves listening to the sea directly beneath us as waves began to crash in earnest against the house. Previous tides had already loosened the pilings and foundations, pressing the house into the sands. When the noise of the surge and the breakup of concrete and wood grew too loud, many of my teammates and their dates broke prudently and ran for the line of cars in safety as the water continued to rise beyond all believing. This great tide would eventually rise just over eight feet and it looked as though it meant to overwhelm the whole island. More and more of the dancers broke and ran laughing as the sea began to take the house apart from below. "'The salt-rusted nails were moaning like cellos "'in the grain of endangered wood. "'I was in the middle of doing the shag "'to Annie Had a Baby "'when a wave tore off the banister of the front porch "'and I lost my partner, Ladare Ansley, "'who fled outside with most of the others, "'squealing with fear and wearing my letterman's jacket. "'Left alone, I took my pint of Maker's Mark "'up to the top floor and went out under the deck "'just off the master bedroom.' I stood face to face with the moon and the ocean and the future that spread out with all its bewildering immensity before me. It was a time in my life when many things bored me deeply and I hungered for beauty in those realms of pure granted to those who had the imagination to know what to look for and how to find it. It was one of the reasons I loved playing right field for the baseball team during that long season as we sparred on the immaculate fields in the sheer beauty of the game's discipline a law unto itself. field was a home place for thinkers if you had the arm to keep the Swift boys from going from first to third on a double. I had the arm and the mineral patience of the daydreamer, and I roamed the outfield green, lamb happy and nervous when Southpaws came to the plate. A door opened behind me. Mama, my daughter Leah squealed. I looked around to see Shiloh Fox in the moonlight. She looked as though she had dressed for this moment with the help of the moon. Bowing deeply, Shiloh asked me if she could have the pleasure of this dance. So we danced toward the central motion of our lives. The winds roared, and a strange love rose like a tide between us and rested in the crown of waves that was loosening the frame of the house. Alone, we danced beneath the full moon and the battery-powered light of cars as the team and their dates cheered each time they saw the giant shift taking place in the water-damaged foundation. As the Atlantic waters rose in a sanctioned dance of wave and tide, the house began to sway like the first terrible lifting of Noah's Ark. We could hear the other five remaining couples as they screamed with pleasure and terror in that room directly beneath us. I held Shiloh closely, dancing with a girl who had taught me how to dance on the veranda of my house. Outside, the players and their dates were begging us to abandon the foundering house and join them at the Driftwood fires. They screamed out of worry and honked their car horns out of pure admiration for our daring. Then the house shuddered as a large wave struck against its cinderblock foundation. Though I felt that same chilling fear that had sent the others running out of the house, Shiloh's eyes held me. As we listened to the hammering of the waves beneath us The cries of our friends now turned to please Each time a wave washed down over the broken up road The salt spray exploding off the beaten down tarmac That had eroded over time like a cookie Half eaten by a child A deck piling snapped outside loud as a rifle shot On the radio the drifters began to sing Save the last dance for me "'Together, as though this scene had long been choreographed "'in some zodiacal prophecy, "'we sat together and with no hesitation said, "'My favorite song.' "'From first note to last, "'we danced the song that became ours at that very moment. "'We were silent above the lapping waters "'as I spun her into the chained shape of a girl "'who looked at me as none others ha- ever had. "'Before her eyes, I felt like a f- prince "'fresh born on the crest of the light-driven waves.' She granted me a beauty I did not have, and my soul turned proud in the fury of her centered wanting of me. Watching, I felt her ardor creating something glittering and good from my heart. It was then that she led me into the bedroom, and I found myself in the torn carpet with Shiloh's lips pressed against mine, her tongue against my tongue, and I heard the fierceness and urgency of her whisper, Fall in love with me, Jack. I dare you to fall in love with me. "'Before I could answer, I heard the house shudder once again and push off "'as it took its first primal step toward the sea. "'The house tilted, then fell forward as though it were prostrating itself "'before the power of this once-in-a-lifetime tidal surge. "'It felt as though a mountain were trying to rise up beneath us.' We left the rug and went out to the newly imbalanced balcony, holding hands to steady ourselves. The moon lit the sea in a freeway of papery light, and we watched the boiling whitecaps feeding on the broken cement scattered beneath the house. We continued to dance while the house kept its appointment with the long tide, and I blazed with the love of this young girl. Our love began and ended with seawater. Later, I would often wish that Shiloh and I had entered into a lover's pack that night and remained in that water-damaged house, enclosed in each other's arms, and had let the ocean pour through the open windows until we rose in some invisible withdrawal and allowed the sea to pull us in a death clench out toward the Gulf Stream and beyond all hurt of history.
3: You can dance. Every dance with the guy who gives you the eye Let him hold you tight You can smile Every smile for the man Who held your hand Neat the pale moonlight But don't forget who's taking you home And in whose arms you're gonna be So darling Say the last dance for me mm. Oh, I know know that the music's fine, like sparkling wine. Go and have your fun, laugh and sing. But while we're apart, don't give your heart to anyone. But don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're going to be. So, darling, Say say the last dance for me. Don't you know I love you so? Can't you feel it when we touch? I will never, never let you go. I love you oh so much. You can dance, you can and dance, go and carry on dance, till the night is gone dance, and it's time to go. Dance,
2: you can dance,
3: if he asks, you can dance, if you're all alone, dance, can he take you, you home? Dance, you must tell him no. Cause don't forget who's taking you home And in whose arms you're gonna be So die, say the last dance for me
1: Cause don't
3: forget who's taking you home So darling, say the last dance for me. Mm-hmm. Say the last dance for me. Mm-hmm. Say the last dance for me.
0: And the song does, in fact, become their song, Jack and Shiloh's song. And it haunts Jack pretty much throughout the entire book, Beach Music, until. uh the very end, when we discover something that, that he's known all along, because he has a letter that, that she has written to him uh, just before she jumps off the bridge. And uh, that letter is is just extraordinary. And, and Save the Last Dance for Me comes back again in, in the letter.
1: You know, it's, it's funny how you try to, in books, recreate your childhood, mm. remake your childhood. I have been looking for a place for Save the Last Dance for Me since I've been writing. I've been looking for a place of enough... Do you know how those songs, when you're a kid, those songs uh, bring back a time, a place,
2: a smell. Why
1: why, why smells are so important to music, I have never understood. Mm. But I can, um, you know, when when I get, you know, near any ocean, you know, the, the the whole thing of my childhood, the whole. Uh, music of my every, Everything comes back like that. And Save the Last Dance for Me was simply my favorite song in mm-hmm. high school. It was the one I loved the most. And I have been looking for an appropriate place my entire life, looking, trying to uh, praise that song and how I felt
0: about it when I was a kid. Well, the appropriate place is now in the new Pat Conroy novel, Beach Music. And it is one of the pieces of beach music that figure in, uh, in giving the book its title. Let's talk a little bit more about this book and about uh, some of your other work as well after we pause for some commercial words. Here on Idiot's Delight, this is 92.3 K-Rock. The stars light up the skies
3: But they can't hold the candle To the sparkle in your eyes Dinner at eight, San Pellegrino, The theater was great
0: Now let me tell Pat Conroy about the, uh, the Cinemax Uh, Summer of a Thousand Movies. Have you heard about this, Pat? No, I haven't. listen to this. Now, this summer, Cinemax, the best network for movies on TV, has a thing called the Cinemax Summer of a Thousand Movies. They're actually programming over a thousand of uh, everybody's favorite movies during the months of June, July, August, and September. Cinemax has over 240 different uh, movies each month, Um, comedies, action, drama, horror, even adult films on something called Friday After Dark. Films like um, Carnal Knowledge, The Wide Sargasso Sea, now The Wide Sargasso, are, is there more than one Wide Sargasso Sea? There is a Sargasso thing that uh, figures in beach music. Is that The Wide Sargasso, That's the wide sea? Sargasso That's sea? That's The it. That's the same one. It's off the coast of of South Carolina, North Carolina, that area, what, about 20 miles out? 20, way out. It's, way the hundreds have, of miles out, I think. The, your characters in the book go that far out. These
1: these fourteen age boys. Okay, they, what they go out they go out when they see sargassum. That that'll grow closer. Now the sea you're talking about is way out. Oh, there. Oh, it's well, okay.
0: All right, because they do hit. But the, th- that
1: seaweed sargassum. Yeah, you, okay. you can get that earlier.
0: Okay, they hit a they hit a. If they hit the sargassum sea, yeah. they're in deep deep okay. trouble. Well, okay, because there is an absolutely wild <laughs> scene. Uh, hold this commercial for just a second. There's some. The book is a series of flashbacks that um, that flashback not only to the childhood of all these main characters who all grew up as childhood friends in um, water Waterford water, South Waterford Carolina. South Carolina. We hear flashbacks about their their early childhood and then their teenage years and finally when they get into college which is now 1967 68 right. 69 it's the height of the Vietnam War and and the world of um protest and revolutionary politics and everything comes to this little sleepy southern place there are other flashbacks as well though because there's another thread that runs through the book about the holocaust um is jewish and her parents survived the holocaust and this has um uh Tainted and haunted her life um, over all these years and it's part of the mystery of perhaps of of why she commits suicide So there is that flashback thing happening as well in the book but there's this there's this moment where these four boys in a a Moment of youthful bravado decide to steal or borrow one of one of their father's boats um, And go off on this fishing trip that turns into like a 50 or 60 page incredible scene total f- fiction from pat conroy or is there any kernel of truth in this wonderful you know, story when i uh, see monsters I, uh, survival <laughs> i mean like these kids get lost at sea and they have to survive out there by uh, by any means necessary and it's just it's just a fabulous wonderful sea story
1: you know i, I collect uh, stories uh when i was a senior at the citadel three cadets, freshmen, were lost at sea. And I went out looking for them. I went on these little, they had search parties, and cadets we would go out in these different boats so I have to look, search for different parts of the ocean. And it was the first time I'd ever been beyond the three-mile limit. And when I'm looking back and realized I couldn't see the shore, I said, you yeah, know, I would not like to be lost out here. Mm-hmm. And it was at another time that I saw, the sea monster you talking about. I saw the first manatee ray that I ever, ever had spotted. And someone told me later they could weigh two tons and I had never seen a, sh- a fish that scared me that badly yeah. uh, out in a small boat. So I collect stories over the years. And it, it is these stories that, you know, sometimes will make appearances uh, like
0: debutantes in my books. Uh-huh. Sure. Well, it's, it's a wonderful scene. I don't know, I got sidetracked from this because I, I read The Wide Sargasso Sea. But that and, and a whole bunch of other movies. Um, I wonder if any of the the films that have been made from your novels will be part of the Cinemax uh the summer of a thousand movies i would venture to guess that some of them will be i hope so just a, a well almost all of them have been made into movies the great santini the water is wide became the movie called Conrad.
1: No, the, Lord the lords of discipline and the and prince of tides, that's prince that's right. of
0: tides. barbara, barbara. <laughs> Well, I got to ask you about Barbara. Let me finish. Let me finish this commercial. Later on this summer, MASH, Speed, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Easy Rider, Intermezzo, The Fabulous Baker Boys. These are some of the films you can see. Plus, uh, uh, a new movie premiering on Cinemax every Friday night at eight o'clock. Call your local cable operator or Cinemax programming distributor now so you can enjoy your favorite movies. And your favorite stars, all during the Cinemax summer of a thousand movies. Cinemax, the best network for movies on TV. Have you been pleased, for the most part, with the film versions of your novels? I've been delighted with all, you know, all four movies. Really? I,
1: I've seen writers get apoplectic, look like they have rabies when you talk about the movies made out of their books. But I feel very lucky. You know, I, I get to hang around better-looking people than I usually do. I uh, have, have liked, the, you know, the ver- and it's always a version of of your vision. in uh-huh. uh, and. and I try to be professional about movies. I know it's going to be a different thing. I know it's going to be you know, not exactly what I envision, but
0: you know, that, that's also part of the mystery and wonder of movies. And I, I would imagine that your readers um, also have their, <laughs> their own vision and their own takes on the movies. Like I, I know, for instance, Prince of Tides, there were a lot of readers who, who, for, for whom that book is like a Bible and who were not happy. With the film version of it, because it just didn't match their vision of who these characters there, there's were. There's
1: a difference in, in reading a book and seeing a movie. And if you read a book before, you, it's it's almost always a disappointment if you read a book before you see a movie, because I think you uh, you make your own movie up. Uh, you see these characters the way uh, you're the director. You're filming the movie yourself. You mm-hmm. put the actors that you you see in there, and it's it's a it's a very upsetting thing for some readers.
0: There's a there's a character in Beach Music who is in fact a filmmaker, very successful Hollywood filmmaker, oh. and it and it's this this guy Mike is his name. It's his um, desire to make a movie about what happened to these characters back in the 1960s that really sets everything in, in, in most, motion. It certainly does. Um, there's a there's a section if if certainly, if, go ahead. if I may um, that deal, may. that deals exactly with what we're talking about um he's sort of like i get the impression he's he's kind of like a spielberg sort of a filmmaker he's made like action adventure you know raiders of the lost ark okay here's a here's a a portion of the narrative of beach music the action adventure movie had become mike's stock and trade and all of them played off the lion-hearted fantasy life of teenage boys his films had more need of plasma units than the red cross did after an earthquake They also had more need of ammunition than an Israeli battalion staring down at Syria from the Golan Heights, but the films were not sleazy, just unimportant. They entertained, with a capital E, as Mike would tell his investors, men who trusted Mike's unerring sense of bad taste, market research. This is this Pat Conroy. This is my bugaboo, market research. So I immediately, this is like all the red lights went flashing when I read this, market research was apparently the vehicle Mike depended on to instruct him in the secret capriciousness of public taste. In one movie, the hero died in in an apocalyptic shootout with a local gang, until a poll after the preview screening demonstrated that the audience preferred to exit into the night with a grinning triumphant hero in their collective consciousness rather than a corpse. Reshooting took place on a back lot, a modern resurrection ensued, and voila! The hero walked slowly into the alphabet of the closing credits, all limbs intact and all villains inert and harmless on the battleground of his last stand. Because of market research, Mike no longer had to depend on the hunches of directors or the artistry of screenwriters. The public knew exactly what it wanted, and Mike was bright enough to feed it to them raw. And then we discover, of course, that, that Mike wants to make a serious movie and he wants to rip off the lives of all of his childhood <laughs> friends to make this. But that's, that's so uh, hits the nail on the head with regard to the current state of, of the film world in Hollywood. In the world, this, don't you
1: think? Oh, this world yeah, in Everything
0: general. is market research now, everything is demographics, and everything is, is all products are generated out of, out of marketing concepts rather than out of a real need for something. You know, it's like, and the and the artist or the creator, whatever it is, whether you're creating a bar of soap or you're creating a novel or a, or a film. Well, novels maybe not. Novels, to a certain extent, may may still be the one bastion where the writer, the sole individual, still has control over what he we, does we, and his vision. I mean, I think we have
1: control over it, but nobody reads it. Yeah, I think it. You know, the novel has lost its potency uh, in American life in so many ways, because of what we're talking about. I think uh, market research, uh, there's been a, a dumbing down in in everything, including the novel. I, I know that market research plays a heavy, heavy role in what they're gonna try to do with beach music. Mm. It never even occurred to me, but I'm sure Doubleday is delighted. I named beach music after a music that you can talk about when I come onto a show. Sure. it's
0: there's uh, well, a. I don't know if you've seen this yet. Have you seen this? I, I, just, I just saw this the other day. The promotional cassette.
1: I saw this. I'm now in the music business. I love this. <laughs> I, uh, and what I love about this, it brought back songs that I had uh, never had copies
0: of uh, these songs before. Like right Double way. Shot of My Baby's but Love, I, which up until recently was very hard to get a hold of, but now it's appeared on a lot of different um, anthology collections. of.
1: Uh, One of the big things in my uh, high school years was people that actually met the Swinging Medallions. Uh, they were about my age, these guys. And they came out of nowhere they were banned in south carolina just came roaring out of nowhere with double shot of my baby's love went up on the charts and uh, you know i once dated a girl who claimed she had dated a boy who had double dated
0: as one of the Swing of the <laughs> what a What a great uh, badge that was. <laughs> this is WXRK New York, 923K Rock. Pat Conroy, the author of Prince of Tides, The Great Santini, The Lords of Discipline, and now the new novel about to be published this week, long awaited. It's been almost 10 years since That's the right. Prince of Tides. Na- nine 1986 years. That's exactly was the, right. the pub date for that. Uh, the new novel, Beach Music, comes out in uh, just a couple of days, just in time for summer. But that's not the reason why the book is coming out now. It's not a marketing ploy. Oh, Beach Music. We'll put it out in time for summer when people are at the beach. This book was supposed to come out um, a while ago.
1: I think it was supposed to come out about five years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and un- unfortunately, it wasn't finished. And it took me a long time to write this book, mm. Vin. Because of the emotions that were engendered? Yeah, but- I, th- I think it was a hard book to write. I think what one of the big things for me is... Uh, the Prince and I has been in such a success and I had never had to follow a success in anything. Um, uh, the other books had done... I mean, they had not sold a great deal. I think uh, The Great Santini sold 10,000 copies and I am talking intergalactic sales. Yeah. I'm talking, you know, worldwide Star, star Wars sales and I had never had Anything happened to me, like what happened with *The Prince of Tides*, and I simply did not quite know how to deal with it. I didn't want to do a cheap book. I didn't want to write quickly. I wanted to wait until the story came to me, and it just took a lot longer to come than mm. the other ones I had. Did you face a block? I mean, a yeah, real, I, I a real think what writer's what block. Uh, my editor, Nant, <laughs> said something that stopped me for about a year. She said, "Now you have to write a book uh, that's worth a million dollars." And before that moment, I had never thought of my books being worth a cent. Mm. So there's that, that intimidation that comes I, I with think success. I think this is what we're talking about, market research and also the, the drive of the market. And suddenly I realized that I was producing not only a book. For the first time, I had the feeling I was producing a product someone wanted to sell. And it terrified me.
0: Mm. And, and, and did you have the desire to just run away from
1: Yes, that I, I certainly did. I ran away for years. I did not write for yeah. years.
0: There was a, an extraordinary coincidence that occurs in the book. This book is dedicated to uh, your brothers, and, and the dedication reads as follows. This book is dedicated to my three wonderful and irreplaceable brothers, Michael Joseph, James Patrick, and Timothy John, loyalists and life sharers, and to Thomas Patrick, our hurt brother and lost boy, who took his own life on August 31st, 1994. The book is about brothers, and there is the youngest brother who uh, fits the description of hurt brother and lost boy in the book, the fictional brother. And when I read the the, uh, the dedication and then met the young fictional brother, I immediately said, oh, God, what's going to happen here? You know, like, you know, it, it was all just sort of telegraphed. And, and since the opening scene is about a suicide, I just assumed there would be this fictional suicide later on. Tell the story about this. Well, I uh,
1: my brother Tom uh, uh, the what the doctors said he was was a paranoid schizophrenic, and he had his first psychotic break by the time my mother was dying. And it, you know, Tom was here is the kind of kid Tom was. Uh, Tom once when I he was twelve, I was twenty seven. He's fifteen years younger. Than me. He had a meeting. He said, "Can I have a meeting with you, Pat?" And I said, "Sure, Tom." And he. Uh, sat down and I said and i said you know i said so um what do you want to talk about baby he said that's what i want to talk about he said pat i'm 12 years old i'm almost a man and you still call me baby and it's embarrassing when my friends come out, so i said well time i certainly will never do that again i said but let me explain this said, i said i was the oldest of seven and when the new kid came along i said somebody grabbed the baby hmm. with you no one else came along and i never lost that habit because you were always my baby brother but i was stop- so uh when tom leapt from a 14-story building last august uh in columbia south carolina i got a call from my brother mike uh this was not an unexpected phone call mm-hmm. uh with people have brothers as hurt as time was you know we you know we live with this uh Uh, The knowledge that Tom may not make it. Uh, He had been hospitalized? He had been hospitalized many times, uh, countless times. Uh, The reason I can't pass um, homeless men and women in New York with any sense of equanimity is because I know my brother Tom could certainly be there. I mean, every time I look at at these folks, I see my brother Tom. Mm. you know, when I got the news that, you know, that Tom had killed himself, and he was called a disaster body. We, he could not be cremated. Uh, I mean, he, we're Catholic, Dad's Catholic, and we were not going to cremate, but he could not be uh, embalmed mm-hmm. because the body was so torn up. So we there was this fast burial. Uh, I called Nan Talese, and I told her, I said, Nan, I have one huge problem here. Um, I've had the guy based on my brother in the book, I've had him commit suicide.
0: This is long before. This your, your was
1: before, book. you know, and, and and she knew that. And I had not sent her the chapter yet, but I said, uh, do you mind if I uh, bring him back to life? I said, I don't think the book can bear this weight of sadness. And I simply could not bear this book. No, I could never look no. at this book again, uh, having my brother kill himself in this. So what I did that was very helpful for me is I threw that chapter away. And mm-hmm. one of the things that took a lot longer again is I
0: had to bring my brother Tom back to life. And it, it, throwing the chapter away and bringing your brother back to life must have been a, a wonderful, cathartic It was cathartic terrific for me. For you. Uh, yeah. you know, the burial of Tom was one of the saddest things I've ever had in my family.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, my father, as you know I've had great problems with, uh, he broke my father. I mean, this was, um, uh, we'd never seen Dad cry. We got to see him cry a lot. Mm. Uh, we'd never seen the great Santini break. We saw him break constantly. He broke apart.
0: And um How how did you feel knowing that you had written this before it happened? You had envisioned this fictional occurrence. You know, what, what I, I had mean, been, the the chills. Uh, Vin, over and above the grief that you felt for your dead brother, on a, on another level as a writer, you must have been like really spooked by it. Well, this. I was I was overwhelmed by it. Yeah. And I uh
1: you know, I couldn't I could not get over one of the things I was worried about, Vin in the writing of this book is my brothers and sisters read my work. I mean, they were, And Tom used to read it all the time. And uh, I was terrified about having this portrait of him anyway. And the fact that this guy was going to end up uh, killing himself, I was worried about the effect it would have on Tom. And I was trying to think of things I would say uh, to make it not Tom and not mm-hmm. like Tom mm-hmm. at all. One of the things I was going to say, well, that guy committed suicide, Tom. You never would. Never would think of it. And I did not, ha- you know, just... Um, you know my fears over this. Not only that it was um, that it became true, but that it became almost prophecy, mm. uh, overwhelming. Mm. And so it was delightful for me to bring him back to life. And that's one of the things I like about fiction: is you can also repair damage, you can also make things right, you can also fix things. Mm.
0: Anne Rice began writing as a form of therapy after her daughter died, and uh, and in the first vampire book. Um, she has a girl who is uh, almost killed and then is turned into a vampire. I didn't know that because right? she wanted to bring her daughter. Back what a great to life, story! Again.
1: I did not know yeah. that at all. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's true. You get to meet everybody, man. I'm lucky. I got the best job in all of radio. I get to meet great writers and great musicians. We're gonna have Joan Osborne on in a little okay. while. A whole band and everything down the hall. Yeah, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Pat Conroy, Beach Music, the new book. Who who's responsible for your love of of books and words? My mother. Okay. I mean, it sure, it sure wasn't dad. No, dad, so.
1: uh, you know, dad. Saw books as sort of foreign objects, but my mother was a great reader and a great book lover. Did she read to you as she children? She read to me constantly um, when I was a kid. Uh, I she read Gone with the Wind with me when I was a little boy, and she would tell me. Um, I want you to be like Ashley Wilkes. I don't want you to be anything like Rep Butler. Wow. And she read <laughs> Anne Frank when I was a little kid. And, I mean, she would just read. I, when I remember my childhood is I remember my mother's voice reading me story after story and me falling in love with story because of it.
0: Uh-huh. And then in 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 the book, the, the mother in the book is dying. That's one another reason why Jack comes back exactly from Rome is because his mother has uh, leukemia and it looks like she's going to die. She winds up living because she's a tough broad, man. She winds up <laughs> she winds up living for another year. Yeah. Um, but when she is finally dying, all of the brothers take turns reading to her. Yeah. yeah. And um,
1: you know, when my mother died, is my sister and I read poetry to my mother. And I think we wanted to send her out in this great wave of the English language like had, we wanted to do for her. The doctor said you know, she probably could hear us even when she went into the coma. So what we wanted to do was her to go out with this, uh, the most beautiful language we could read her. And so we just start, took turns to reading all the
0: oh, time. Oh, what a wonderful notion, to go out on a great wave of the English language. That's fabulous. I got all kinds of notes here, Pat. I, I don't mark up books. Out of... I just can't do it. I can't, like, write in the margins. I know some people can, but I can't. So I put everything on, on this note paper here. May I do one mm, more sure little section? Um, this is how Jack feels about books. He's returned to his childhood home, his childhood room. I, this This so delighted me. I turned my attention to the paperback books, and it seemed that not a single one had been removed from its place. This room had long served as a retreat from the disharmony and sadness of the first floor, and it was here I had fallen in love with these books and authors in a way that only lifelong readers know and understand. A good movie had never once affected me in the same life-changing way a good book could. Books had the power to alter my view of the world forever. A great movie could change my perceptions for a day. I had always kept these books in alphabetical order, from AG to Zola, and I had read for the way words sounded, not for the ideas they espoused. "'Hello, Holden Caulfield,' I said, taking the book from its shelf. "'Meet you at the Waldorf under the clock. "'Say hey to Phoebe. "'You're a prince, Holden, a real goddamn prince.'" Taking out Look Homeward Angel, I read the magnificent first page and remembered when I had been a 16-year-old boy, and those same words had set me ablaze with the sheer, inhuman beauty of the language as a cry for mercy, incantation, and a great river roaring through the darkness. "'Hello, Eugene,' Hello, Ben Gant, I said quietly, for I knew these characters as well as I knew anyone in the world. Literature was where the world made sense for me. Greetings, Jane Eyre. Hello, David Copperfield. Jake, the fishing is good in Spain. Beware of Osmond, Isabel Archer. Be careful, Natasha. Fight well, Prince Andre. The snows, Ethan Fromm. The green light, Gatsby. Be careful of the large boys, Piggy. I do give a damn, Miss Scarlet. The words of Burnham, the woods of Burnham are moving, Lady Macbeth. And my reverie was broken by Leah's voice. Who are you talking to, Daddy? My books, I said. (laughs) Oh, man. And that's, being a book lover and knowing that you are that kind of book lover as well, that just is like the epitome of of what it is that we all feel from, from these books. And your book is right up there your book beach music will be up there prince of tides is certainly up there great santini great santini is up there as well just fabulous stuff
1: it, it just amazes me still then that uh somebody pays me money to do this yeah because it is a joy <laughs> it is yeah you know, i like this
0: even with all the even with the the block and the depression and the the grief and the the, the the struggle to get it out it still is well you know joy. when i just
1: heard you read that it was all worth it. Uh, that sounded great and i can never remember what i write and it's always a surprise to hear somebody read it and if i wrote that i'm glad i write for a living you write quickly don't you you know when i'm going is when it's coming out when i'm spinning mm-hmm. i can go and you write by hand I write by hand. No typewriter? No I, word processor? Uh, my father, the Marine Corps fighter pilot, would not let me take typing in high school. Why not? Girls took typing. Fighter pilots did not.
0: <laughs> and so you never... Yes, so I never you learned never to learned. type. And I still write by hand to this day. This book is a long book. It's over 600 pages long. It must have been a couple of thousand pages in a handwritten manuscript. It was a couple of thousand when I finished it. That's uh, a lot of writing by hand. And, uh, yeah, and
1: it was, uh, but, you know, there's something, um, there's something about the pen, the hand, the bloodstream, the brain. It it makes sense to me now. That's Uh how I do it. And I'm I'm now, I'm resigned to that. It's it's a very old-fashioned way of writing. And you, but you are a very old-fashioned writer. Well, I hope so. Aren't you? Um... It, you know, what I write does not depend on market research. Uh, it depends on what moves me, what thrills me, what excites me, what exalts me. And, you know, I, I don't mind writing those things by hand. And
0: and you're not afraid to spill out emotions. So many contemporary writers, I read a lot. I mean, I'm a book junkie. Yeah. I mean, you come to my house, there's no, there's no room to move. But so many of the contemporary novelists leave me cold you know i can admire their skill their craft their use of words sometimes but i don't ever connect
1: if it does not move me i don't care if i do not feel passionately about something and this includes writing this includes books i don't care if a movie does not get me i don't care music is the same way people the same way uh I like to feel things. I like to feel powerful emotions. I like them surging through my body. And when I go to a book, that's what I want to feel. All those books you just read on that page, I felt that. Mm-hmm. And I felt it more as a kid than I do today. And, uh, and I, I'm always curious why. But the music I love is music that uh, that tears me up, that uh, changes my world. Sure. And I, when, I, when I, I do not write about things that do not move me personally.
0: You mentioned in this section that I just read, Look Homeward Angel. um, Thomas Wolfe was a big influence on you?
1: He's a huge influence on me. I had an English teacher named Gene Norris that gave me uh, a copy of Look Homeward Angel when I was 15. He said, I think you're ready for the many pleasures of Thomas Wolfe. Uh, The book blew my head off. Uh. Uh, That summer, Gene Norris took me to Asheville, North Carolina. He took me to the house where Thomas Wolfe grew up. He said, here's where he ate dinner. Here's where he sat on the porch with his mother. Then he took me off in the bedroom and he said, here's where his brother, Ben Gantt, died. And later he took me out to the uh, backyard where there's an apple tree where the curator said that he used to love the apples. And Gene reached up, got me an apple, handed it to me, and I said, why would you do that? He said, eat it. I said, why, Mr. Norris? He said, because I want you to know there's a relationship between life and art.
0: Wow. I feel bad now that I have to break for commercials after that, but I do have to break for Mark commercials. Mark Research tells us that. <laughs> Here on Idiot's Delight, my guest is Pat Conroy. We'll be right back after this.
2: Tired of the same old song and dance from Toyota, Honda, and Ford? Nobody beats the winds. Ain't nobody gonna beat the winds.
0: Pat Conroy is my guest. He is uh, the novelist author of the new book, Beach Music, which is uh, being published this week also the author of The Prince of Tides, The Great Santini, The Lords of Discipline, The Water is Wide. You have a, a kind of an interesting relationship. You've mentioned your editor several times, Nan Talese. You have a relationship that is uh, very much an old-fashioned relationship with an editor that also harkens back to uh, a comparison we can make with, with Thomas Wolfe and the relationship that, that he had with um, his editor, and now I'm drawing a blank, the guy at Scribner's, Maxwell Perkins, Maxwell Perkins of course, at Scribner's, Wolf would, would hand in these en- enormous boxes of, of manuscript, and it was Maxwell Perkins who had to give shape to them, had to help Wolf organize the speedy stuff that came out of him. You have a very similar relationship with, with Nan Talese, with your editor as well. Nan,
1: I always tell Nan, I say, Nan, let me write everything that I'm, I'm feeling or thinking during the, the time it takes to write a novel. Uh, then you pull it back. You cut it down. You shape it. And I'll work with you and I'll help you, but just let me let me let everything out so I don't feel like I'm holding back. I um, Always think that's you know something writers do so much. is try to uh, to figure out how little they can say. And I just I, I like just letting that drive, let letting that river flow, and then letting
0: her dam it up when we need to uh, pull a book out of it. And you're not you're not possessive of all of that when it gets to her when she says no, nah, this doesn't work that's got to go this that and the other, you're willing to go with. Yeah, I'm fairly her.
1: possessive. Um, th- there are things that Nan Nan hates. Um, Anytime I get a big fish, she calls it my big fish thing, like that chapter you're talking about. I was delighted to see you like that. Oh. Nan couldn't stand that chapter. Really? Oh, yeah. Nan, Nan doesn't like these fish ch- you know, She <laughs> hates that stuff. And I said, Nan, it's because you live on 61st Street. You know, this is you uh, live in New York City. Of course, you don't like big fish. And the the only big fish-
0: There's harpoons in, the oh, there's sea, in this There's sea. everything. There's, there's, everything. everything. <laughs> there's, there's everything in this thing.
1: And it took a lot of work for me to put all that nonsense in that boat. I mean, I had to work hard on that thing. Yeah, and, yeah. And she wanted to throw the whole thing out and and leave that, and um and she you know she was writing away and and I could see if that that whole chapter was not in there, uh it would be a more tightly written book. It would be you know she certainly would, So I had to fight for things like that. Mm. And but, I trade with her. Okay. I'll trade. I I'll okay, Nan, you don't like that good, and she also knows me. If it doesn't make it in this book, it'll come back in another form mm-hmm. in another book. Uh, there's one story in here that we fought about i think for two books is uh the general sherman story i don't even know if you remember oh it. yeah sure the and mother is telling the story exactly yes. and i could i've been trying to get that story because i love the story mm-hmm. and it had nothing to do with this book whatsoever
0: but i desperately tried to get that story but in. pat for me the charm of 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 beach music and and of prince of tides as well the charm lies in the tangents the charm is when the book goes off and, and, that's what I love. And books, leaves, so. you know, yeah, or any, you know, yeah, any book that I, does that. I, I, I like that too. I always like those things. That, uh, that big, all encompassing, all embracing thing that, that you get into. I mean, that's what. That's why you know what, why people read Dickens. I can't read Dickens now. I mean, there's something about Dickens that hasn't translated for me now. And I, I want to read Dickens for that big embracing thing, but for some reason I get lost in it. And after 50 or 60 pages, I put it down. But that's part of the charm of, of what Dickens was doing as well. It's a whole world that's being created, not just this one little room somewhere, you know, or this one little life Yeah, I can't stand straight somewhere.
1: line. I can't do it. It's not that I can't stand it. I I don't like that straight line of a mm-hmm. book that just, you know, sails in a straight... From uh, A to B, I I like that thing when things meander and go off, and something catches an author's eye. And
0: uh, there, you say that um, that that your editor, for instance, doesn't care for the fish stories at all. What about the violence? There's incredible violence. In you know, beach music this is where I
1: really think this is where my father's character has imprinted on me. Uh, there is violence in in my books. Um, there certainly was violence in my life. I think instead of beating up my wife and kids is violence appears naturally in all my books. It's Mm -hmm. been in every single book I've written. I think this is the mark of Don Conroy on me. I think this is the mark of the Colonel. I think that violence was such a part, so common a thing for me to encounter in my childhood that my characters get in trouble. Things happen, things occur, and many times they're violent things. And I honestly believe this is the effect of my father's brutality on me, this is where it comes out.
0: And is is it is it is it latent in you? Is it is it hanging around? <laughs> is, it, I mean, is it hanging I, around in you? I mean, yeah, you I, say I, Instead it, of beating your wife and yeah. children, you know.
1: I remember when I when I was a, a young man and uh, a kid would knock over a glass of water. I think to myself, well, why do I feel like hitting this kid? Mm, yeah. I said, you know, my first impulse is to belt this child. It'd be a baby, and then I realized, Dad, if if a glass went over, at the dinner table, Dad would 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 backhand him. And I said, so that's how it works. And I said, okay, you gotta watch that. Gotta watch. So if a child cries, uh, my first impulse is to hit. The, Dad would, Dad used to tickle us when we got older. Is a, a small kid would come up to him, crying, and Dad would say hushed that crying, and then slapped the child, which we thought wow. was the most ridiculous. Uh, if you want to stop a crying child, that's not exactly the technique I would recommend. But what I felt when I became a father was that there was always this thing that the instinct, the primal thing, was to hit. And so I fought that my whole life. Uh, so I, did, I didn't hit And
0: myself. so how interesting it is that it comes out in your, in your work.
1: Yeah, in I think it comes episode. out in the books. There yeah. they are, these poor characters having terrible things happen to them.
0: You know, I mean, it's yeah. Terrible things happen to them. It's not like you know the heroes are involved in in creating this uh-huh. violence necessarily, but certainly the Holocaust stuff in this new book is excruciating. Well,
1: I interview. I interviewed yeah. about. I interviewed just lots and lots of people about that. Uh, people who gone through the Holocaust. I interviewed their children a lot of how that you know affected them when they were growing up, mm. and very very early. And one of the reasons I think it took me a lot of time to write this book too is even the saddest stories I had ever heard uh, I would interview you know men and women and invariably uh you know I had two children uh, they I lost them both at auschwitz i I had a, a wife uh, she was killed um, before we even got on the train I mean I, and I realized I'm not going to hear a good story out of this I'm not gonna hear one happy story out of this and it just was the the weight of testimony the weight of witness was was simply unbearable and, you know, that gets reflected in the book.
0: Was it very difficult for you to write those long It was horrible. The thing scenes. of George,
1: the chapter of George Fox in this book is the hardest thing I've ever written. Mm. Uh, I hated writing it. I hated what I had to do. This this poor man,
0: what he had to go through. George Fox is the father of Shiloh, the girl who has committed suicide. Exactly. Okay. And I just, that was, that was the toughest thing I've ever written. And he's a hard, tough guy. cold
1: guy. Tough and guy. And we finally find out why he's tough such guy. a hard, tough guy. And, uh, uh... It's, and it just, you know, doing that research, I think it took longer than anything else, and it simply was excruciating.
0: Mm. It's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. Pat Conroy. There's one other very short section. (laughs) Do it. Can I? I, Because I see you're getting a kick out of it, so. Here's why I love it. I don't have to read it. <laughs> I've always hated
1: the way my voice sounded. Really? I, I love yeah. what you're saying. You from. don't have,
0: you didn't, now you, you were born in Atlanta. That's right. And then the family moved around a lot until you finally settled in Buford. Exactly. You have no Southern accent.
1: It, you know, I don't hear one. It's uh, in different parts of, uh, up here everybody says, you know, where are you from? You know, and I've had people up here that always think I sound Southern. Uh, I can't hear my own voice. I do not sound Southern to me. No, you don't. And I do not sound southern to a lot of other Southerners. It's just that I was raised completely in the South, and no one can explain where this ridiculous voice comes from.
0: Is home still there now, or do you live? It's you know,
1: Beaufort, South Carolina, is the place I kind of chose. Military brats don't can't tell you where they're from, what what their hometown is, but Beaufort has certainly become the fictional home for me.
0: And how about in, in reality? In,
1: in reality, I, you know, I, I keep, I've even thought about moving to New York. I've uh, been looking at coming up here. And,
0: uh, you have a place on one of the islands down I have there, a place
1: right? on an island down in, between Charleston and uh, Savannah, and a place called Frippa near Beaufort. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. Uh, I've been looking up here. I like this uh-huh. up here. And you, have you spent time living in Rome? Rome is uh Italy, Italy town I lived three years in Italy uh-huh. uh, over in Rome and <clears throat> could not wait to write about that. I want to tell
0: you. Yeah, I've only been to Rome once. I was there, in I was in Rome. My wife and I were in Rome. You'll you'll appreciate this, since since Shyla and Jack met in, well, they met when they were children, really, Mm -hmm. but fell in love right at the very end of high school and got married. Had their honeymoon in in Rome. Mm -hmm. My my wife and I met when we were seniors in high school in 1965. Uh, We got married five years later, and we just celebrated our 25th. Congratulations! Wedding anniversary.
1: That's fabulous.
0: Uh, and I know I all those songs that you talk about, you know, as they may, they might not necessarily be the exact same songs, but those songs that were present during that period when we were falling in love, you know, when those songs come on the radio now or whatever, boy, mm. it just brings you right back there, brings you right back there. Anyhow, us in Rome, you lived in Rome for a while. We were in Rome in seventy five or six. And it was sort of at the height of one of the periods of um, student uprising right. in Rome during the 70s. So everywhere you went, there were people with machine guns, you know, the, po- the police, the polizia with uh, with uh, machine guns. And as we were leaving, the day we left, we were on a bus going out to the airport, and we were driving past the Capitol, that there's those steps that lead up to the, the Capitol. What, uh-huh. is that? what is that called? Is that, cap? that's not Capitol Line. What is uh, that? Capoline Hill. Is Capoline Hill? Hill? Yeah. And as the bus drove by, we saw on the ground level hundreds of soldiers or, or police with shields and, and clubs, and up on at the top of the hill um, were the students throwing rocks down at them. And we just looked and said, this is a beautiful place, we're glad we're leaving, because <laughs> it was scary at it's, that point. You know, they have serious scared. students over in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> well now the student uprising takes uh uh an important part in beach music as well. Um Jack the character who f- f- is really, you know, a stand-in for you to a certain extent doesn't think too kindly about the 60s and about uh what happened to the country and about both sides in the fight over the Vietnam War. Um he's sort of very much his own man. Is that a is that a pretty accurate it, reflection You know it you it feel? just was um it, the the piety on both sides it nearly
1: drove me crazy then, yeah. and um, I was uh, against the war. My my father and I used to argue about I it bet, constantly. I uh, uh And we just and it just didn't seem like a very good war to me. Mm-hmm. And it's just I think it's divided our generation
0: in a way that I'm not sure we're ever gonna get it back together. It's still just, still yeah, to this day. I think. Well I, look at look at uh, uh, you know our president running for the presidency yeah, exactly. and how all that yeah. stuff, you know, came back. And again, it, 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 it the them and us happened all over again. Yeah,
1: and I, I, I watched Newt Gingrich and, uh, Phil Graham and, uh, Pat Buchanan and, you know, they were drafted outers like me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Bill was, you know, I know what Bill Clinton did. He did exactly what, we, you know, most of us did mm. in that generation. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah, know, I felt bad about the guys that fought and, yeah, you know, that, that was very, very tough for them, uh, going over having to do that and coming back to dishonor and uh, uh, contumely and um, having scorn heaped upon that. It just, it just seemed like we could have done it better if we were more thoughtful and quieter. And so I put that with Jack McCall. Mm-hmm. I let Jack reflect all, right. all
0: that. Okay. I said there, there was one more short scene that moved me um, profoundly, and I'm not sure why. Um, uh, well, part of it is just the beauty of your writing. But there's something else that happens in this short scene that, I, that you might even be surprised when you, see, when you hear what it is. Uh, this is from the book Beach Music, the new novel by Pat Conroy that is being published this week. Uh, one of the flashback scenes, these four friends, once again, Jack and his friend Jordan, who um, uh, be- runs away uh, from uh, a terrible uh, accident... Uh, and becomes a priest living in Rome. Uh, Capers, who is about to run for governor of South Carolina, who is a real kind of God in the wool <laughs> conservative son of a bitch. And uh, Mike, who is this, the film producer. Right. This is a flashback to the four of them, uh, teenagers, 16, 17 years old. They decide to go out swimming one day. When the full moon came at the end of August, the four of us decided that we would swim out to meet it. Going deeper than we ever had before, Jordan paddled his surfboard past the breakers into the black waters a quarter of a mile offshore. We swam slowly beside him, sometimes grabbing the board and hitching a ride the way a remora does to a shark. This is deep enough, Capers warned. A little bit further, Jordan urged. We're in Shark City, USA, Mike said. Not part of their food chain, Jordan said. In 20 feet of water, Jordan slipped off the board, and the four of us watched the moonlight play on the surface of the water. It enclosed us in its lasseries as we watched the moon spill across the Atlantic like wine from an overturned glass. The tides rushed through our legs as we dangled, innocent as bait. Far away, we could see the light of the caretaker's house where my grandfather would be sitting, reading a book, and listening to a country music station. We were so far out that the house looked like a ship that had run aground. With the light all around us, we felt secreted in that moon-infested water like pearls forming in the soft tissues of oysters. Our four heartbeats stirred the curiosity of the black drum, the pompano, and the whiting that hunted for food beneath us. A porpoise sounded twenty yards away from us in an explosion of breath, startling us. Porpoise, I said, thank God it's not a great white. Then another porpoise broke the water and rolled toward us, A third and a fourth porpoise neared the board and we could feel great secret shapes eyeing us from below. I reached out to touch the back of one, its skin the color of jade, but as I reached the porpoise dove and my hand touched moonlight where the dorsal fin had been cutting through the silken waters. The dolphins had obviously smelled the flood tide of boyhood in the sea and heard the hormones singing in the boy-scented waters. None of us spoke as the porpoises circled us. The visitation was something so rare and perfect that we knew by instinct not to speak. And then, as quickly as they had come, the porpoises moved away from us, moved south where there were fish to be hunted. Each of us would remember that night floating on the waves all during our lives. It was the year before we went to high school, when we were poised on the slippery brink between childhood and adulthood, admiring our own daring as we floated free from the vigilance and approval of adult eyes, ruled only by the indifference of stars and fate. It was the purest moment of freedom and headlong exhilaration that I had ever felt. A wordless covenant was set among us the night of the porpoises. Each of us would go back to that surfboard again and again in our imaginations— Return to that night where happiness seemed so easy to touch. For over an hour we drifted in our own private gulf stream, talking of our unlived-in lives, telling jokes and stories that are both the source of intimacy and evasion among teenage boys. That just just knocks me out. That is just such beautiful writing. Pat Conroy. The Night of the Porpoises. And it's it's three paragraphs in a 625 page book. But it's 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 just a gem, absolute gem. This has been uh, a great honor and privilege, and a whole lot of fun having you here tonight. You can have me back anytime you want, my friend. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I'll uh, I'll take you up on that offer. Is the next book happening yet? Nah, I'm just. Uh, <laughs> I'd be lying to you. It's. Uh, oh, you sudden you suddenly got southern just then too. Did I really? I'd be lying to you. Yeah. Yeah, you suddenly got southern. <laughs>
1: That would be a terrible life. Not even a a, a journey. I, 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 I think I'm gonna write an Atlanta novel. Atlanta. Really? Yeah. I think I'm gonna do a my first city
0: novel. Uh, okay. All right. Sounds good. Beach music, the new one. Pat Conroy, author of The Prince of Tides, Great Santini, Lords of Discipline. All those books available um, still in uh, in paperback, and uh, this new one will be published later this week by Doubleday. Good luck with it. Good luck on your uh, your tour, this is right at the very beginning We're getting you when you're relatively fresh This huh?
1: is um, this is my first interview uh, The tour starts this week
0: And I began with you, Vin I'm the only guy On the tour That's going to play the chairman of the board for you And I will send you on your way Into the New York night with with my thanks You're the only guy on the who's going to know What the chairman <laughs> of the board is, are you kid? And my admiration, Pat Conroy It's been a pleasure having you on it Thanks so fun. much, Vin